Good morning, church. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Genesis. We will get there eventually. I promise. And I am uh, delighted, excited, joyed to be in uh, the book of Genesis as a church. And this morning's teaching is going to be a slightly, uh, is going to be a little bit different if you are newer to Redeem South Bay. As you may remember, in June of this year, we finished our series in the book of Ephesians. And then last week, we just ended what has become our annual summer series, a summer of Psalms. And uh, I specifically want to talk to you if maybe you've joined us over the summer. I want to just share with you a little bit about our preaching ministry here at Redeem South Bay and how we view it. Uh, Generally, at Redeem South Bay, we aim to preach through books of the Bible verse by verse over an extended period of time that may last weeks or months or sometimes even years in a format known as expository preaching. And expository preaching is a manner of preaching that simply seeks to expose and explain the meaning of any given text of Scripture. And at Redeem South Bay, your pastors believe that the preachers or that the expositors' primary task in teaching and preaching is simply this, to study the text in accord with the grammar and context of that passage, in order to understand and ascertain the meaning of the text, and then to teach it, and to proclaim the theological truths of that text, and finally to consider and communicate the implications and the applications of the text. And this kind of preaching is what we seek to provide as the meat and potatoes, if you will, of the flock's diet, so you will be strong and healthy, understanding the Word of God, and ready to stand the battle. We trust that the Spirit of God uses the Word that He inspired to convert sinners to Christ. We believe that wholeheartedly. Making these sinners, these converted sinners, saints, and conforming those saints ever increasingly into the image of His beloved Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so this is how we primarily view our Sunday morning preaching ministry at Redeem South Bay. However, when we begin a new sermon series in a new book of the Bible, we usually like to introduce that whole book in the first sermon of that series. And so here we are today. We're going to double dip today. We're going to have an introduction to the book of Genesis, and then we're going to preach Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And so since I have two tasks this morning, that gives me double the time to present the introduction. And no, I'll try to, oh, I got one applause. Okay, I'm going to take that. That's from the Lord right there. Amen. Amen. Um, So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to be introduced to the book of Genesis, and then I'll preach Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. But before all that, let us ask God's blessing on our time together this morning. Lord, we thank you that you are the powerful God who is and who chose to create. We do confess that we are poor and powerless. 
But when we consider who you are and how you've revealed yourself in this first book of the Bible, we should be in awe of how great, how beautiful, how powerful, how sovereign you are. And so, Lord, we're asking this morning that as we consider the book of Genesis and as we look at the first two verses, that you would help us to have a fresh view of who you are. Help us to be in awe of you. Help us to take you at your word. Help us to understand your word and apply your word in our day-to-day lives. Help us by your spirit, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. What we believe and how we understand the book of Genesis necessarily impacts what we believe and how we understand vitally important doctrines that will come later on in Scripture. More specifically, what we believe and how we understand the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis has profound implications in how one formulates their theology. For instance, Genesis chapters 1 through 11 present the God who created absolutely everything. It presents the God who uniquely created mankind in his own image to rule over the earth. It presents God as the author and definer of human marriage. It presents the fall of mankind and tells us when and where and how creation was marred through sin. It introduces sin as the reason for death. It presents God's plan to overcome sin and evil through the seed of the woman. It displays God's holy hatred of sin. It declares that there is one human race and shows us how various ethnic or language groups ultimately came from one couple, our first parents, Adam and Eve. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 ultimately shows us that God is good and that his creation is good. Genesis chapters 3 through 11 ultimately tell us that rebellion against God and his goodness is evil and that it results in the righteous judgment of God. Yet tucked in chapters 3 through 11 of Genesis, we find these precious words from God to the servant when God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise or crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. This verse is what's known as the Proto-Euangelion, which is the first mention of the gospel is what that means. It's the good news that God presents in the very first time after sin enters into the human experience, that he has a plan and a purpose and the ability to redeem. And by the end of Genesis 11, the reader realizes that man is in dire need for redemption. The fall had occurred. The flood had occurred. The Tower of Babel incident had occurred. And we realize that mankind's heart is bent towards self-exaltation rather than toward God-exaltation. We need the good news of redemption. 
if we understand our sinful status. Beginning in Genesis 12, God begins to detail just how he plans to execute the good news that he mentions in chapter 3, verse 15. Beloved, the book of Genesis truly is foundational to our Christian faith. And so let's get a 30,000-foot overview of the forest before we examine some of its trees throughout our sermon series. I want to just share briefly five introductory points to the book of Genesis. First, the title of the book. Second, the author and audience of the book. Thirdly, the purpose of the book. Fourthly, the outline of the book. And fifthly, major themes of the book. So let's begin with the title of the book. The Hebrew title is simply Bereshith, and that's the first word of the Hebrew uh, the, first ver- the first word of the first verse in the Hebrew, it's in the beginning. That's why we call it the book of beginnings. And the Greek title is Genesis, obviously from which we get Genesis, which conveys the idea of source or the idea of origin or the idea of generation. And so both the Hebrew and the Greek titles for this book give us some semblance, some understanding that this is where it all began. Consider the author and audience of the book for a moment. Traditionally, throughout church history, Moses has been accepted as the author of the Torah or the Pentateuch, which refers to the first five books of the Old Testament, or or better stated, a five-volume book comprised of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. The elders of this church affirm that Moses is indeed the author of Genesis and of the Torah for that matter. Long story short, we don't have time to get into the details, but pretty much the 18th and the 19th century hits and people start to question what the church has calmly believed and adhered to for 1,800 years. And so if you're interested at all in reading a couple of your pastor's perspectives on the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch, then know that Pastor Jeff Alfoss and myself had the opportunity to write a paper on that very topic. We'd be happy to share it with you, but take the old dead guys at their word. Moses wrote the book of Genesis. (laughs) That said, in regard to the book's audience, Genesis was written to the nation of Israel or Hebrews who would become the nation of Israel. And it's important for us to, to realize that. It's important for us to remember that the Torah was written to Israel as a way for God to communicate who he was, what he had done, and what he planned to do for and to the people whom he had chosen. The Torah establishes that Yahweh, or Jehovah, was the one true God over against all the other false deities, and that he had chosen Israel to be blessed and to be the means of his blessing to the world. The book of Genesis was supposed to provide Israel with confidence in and identity with the only true God as it detailed the origin and early history of the world from God's authoritative perspective. So Genesis, along with the rest of the Torah, was initially written to Israel, yet it is for our benefit, it is for our instruction, it is our history 
as well if we believe in the one true God of the Bible. Let's talk about the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book. I briefly touched on the purpose of the book under the heading of author and audience, but let me explicitly state a purpose. The purpose of the book of Genesis is to chronicle the origin and early history of the universe, the human race, sin and depravity, tribes and languages, the patriarchs, the nation of Israel, and God's promise of blessing and redemption. What a book. And for those of you who are tedious note-takers, I'm going to give it to you again. The purpose of the book of Genesis is to chronicle the origin and early history of the universe, the human race, sin and depravity, tribes and languages, the patriarchs, the nation of Israel, and God's promise of blessing and redemption. This truly is an amazing book that is vitally important for you and I to grasp and understand. Oftentimes, it's easier for us to grasp the whole picture of a book, especially when it's a long book, 50, 50 chapters in the book of Genesis, if we can think of it in a helpful outline. And so let me provide two outlines, or really multiple ways to outline any books of the Bible. My favorite ways to outline a book of the Bible are first an exegetical or grammatical outline, and then secondarily a thematic outline. And so I'm going to give us one of each for you to hopefully understand an outline form what's going on in the book of Genesis. First is the exegetical outline of Genesis. There's one word repeated multiple times throughout the book of Genesis to signify the beginning of new sections, and that word is toledot, toledot, which is translated generations. The word is used 11 times in the book of Genesis. It's used twice in chapter 36, and those 11 times, two of them being in chapter 36, provides us with 10 distinct major sections in the book of Genesis, and that's apart from the introductory work of creation. And so before I walk through that exegetical outline, I, I want to tell you what this outline does for us, what it communicates to us. This outline suggests that God, in the introduction, is presented as the sovereign, benevolent creator of absolutely everything. That's how we're introduced to God when we read the first chapter of the book of Genesis. But then in the following ten Toledot sections... God is presented as the one who forms mankind from the dust of the ground and breathes the breath of life into his nostrils. Why? So that God might bring about his purposes and his promises through the progeny of those whom he had formed and given life to in the garden. That's what this outline communicates to us. Here's God. He's sovereign. He created it all. He creates man and he uses the offspring of man to bring about his purposes and his plans. And so let me briefly just give you these markers for you in your Bible. We have the introduction to the book of Genesis, known as the creation of heaven and earth, in chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 2, verse 3. And from that point forward, we have ten Toledotes. We have the generations of heaven and earth, beginning in chapter 2, verse 4. 
We have the generations of Adam, beginning in chapter 5, verse 1. We have the generations of Noah, beginning in chapter 6, verse 9. We have the generations of Shem and Ham and Japheth, beginning in chapter 10, verse 1. We have the generations of Shem, beginning in chapter 11, verse 10. Then we have the generations of Terah, and this is where we get, get Abram, or Abraham, and this is a, a large chunk. Beginning in chapter 11, verse 27, we have the generations of Terah, and that's going to take us all the way through chapter 25, verse 11. Then we have the generations of Ishmael, chapter 25, verse 12. Then the generations of Isaac, chapter 25, verse 19. Then the generations of Esau, chapter 36, verse 1. And lastly, the generations of Jacob, beginning in chapter 37, verse 2, all the way to the end of the book. God is the sovereign creator who uses man whom he has created after his own image to bring about his plans and purposes. That's what that exegetical outline communicates. But there's also a thematic outline in the book of Genesis, and it's far easier than what I just walked through, and so you can praise the Lord in your heart. It's really simple. A thematic outline, what it does is it often traces or formats the contents of a book according to key events or persons, or subjects. And so really there are two major points, two major sections if we think about the book of Genesis thematically. There's primitive history in the first 11 chapters, or primeval history if you want to think of it that way, and there's patriarchal history. Primitive history, chapters 1 through 11, patriarchal history, chapters 12 through 50. And if we think of each of those, we can provide some subpoints. When we think of primitive history, we think of four key events. We think of the creation in chapters 1 and 2. We think of the fall in chapter 3. We think of the flood in chapters 6 through 9. And we think of Babel in chapter 11. And so there's four key events in primitive history, creation, fall, flood, and Babel. And just as there are four key events in primitive history, there are also four key individuals or four key persons in patriarchal history. We have Abraham, we have Isaac, we have Jacob, and we have Joseph. Four key persons in chapters 12 through 50, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So those are two helpful ways for us to think through the book of Genesis. The goal here, giving you an introduction and an overview as we make the long haul preaching through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Lastly, uh, major themes of the book major themes of the book. And obviously, as we work our way through the book, we will certainly go into more depth in these things. But for now, this morning, I simply want to make you aware of some of the major themes that, and provide some information about them. And some of the major themes of the book of Genesis include, number one, the sovereign God. Um, newsflash, the Bible's about God. And Genesis introduces us to the sovereign God. And we see God as the one who is totally in control over all things in the very first chapter of the book. That's kind of a no-brainer. But what I find particularly encouraging is not only do we see this sovereign God as he creates, we also see the sovereign God in control over the affairs of men. And perhaps most familiar to us and perhaps 
We see this sovereignty on display most clearly in the events of Joseph's life. God is working out his plans and his purposes, and God provides dreams to Joseph, which eventually come to fruition. They come to fruition despite the sinful opposition from men. And eventually Joseph speaks to his brothers who had sinned against him, and he says famously in chapter 50, verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And this, of course, is a lesson for God's people to learn, that God is always working. Hear me, saint. That God is always working for the good of his people, despite what they can see. Major theme number two, not only do we see the sovereign God, but we also see the powerful God. Time will not allow me to uh, walk through all the acts of power that we see in the book of Genesis, but let me just name a few. We see this aspect of the Lord as he creates and as he judges via the flood and as he protects and provides for his people. He is the God who is in control, but he's also the able God. It's one thing to have the seat of authority. It's another thing to have the seat of authority and the ability to do whatever it is that you desire. And that's our God. And that's what the book of Genesis presents to us. Third major theme, the sin of mankind. The sin of mankind. We see it early and we see it often. We can think, of course, of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. We can think of the flood generation, the Babel generation. We can go Sodom and Gomorrah, and we can go on and on and on. We are introduced to the sin of mankind in the book of Genesis. And of course, the sin of man brings about the judgment of God, which happens to be the fourth major theme. The judgment of God. Nearly every major sinful event in the book of Genesis results in judgment from God. This displays the holiness of God who rightfully hates sin. And this theme informs us that God does not at all take sin lightly, and it demands that we not take sin lightly either. God hates sin. Can I get an amen on that? God hates sin. He is absolutely and totally holy. Therefore, he calls his people to be holy. Yet, he redeems sinners from their sin. And this leads us to the fifth major theme of the book of Genesis, which is the grace of God which is the grace of God. Although nearly every major sinful event in Genesis results in judgment from God, that's not all it results in. It also results in a display of God's grace. Just for example, we could go on and on, but there's, some of these are just so unbelievable. Turn with me, please, Genesis chapter 3. So, so Adam and Eve, they're created... And they're made in the image of God, and everything's wonderful, right? And then they question God. They question taking God at his word. He tells them, if you disobey me in this matter, sin will lead to death. In a nutshell, 
serpent comes and he says, ah, I'm not sure about that God guy. Maybe you should doubt his word rather than trust his word. And so they do, and you know the account, Genesis chapter 3. But even as God is the one who's cursing the serpent and he's cursing the ground because of man's sin, we find in chapter 3, verse 21, an utter act of grace. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Right there, we're introduced to a covering, a sacrifice and a covering of sin provided by none other than God himself. Similarly, we see in chapter 6, verse 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's man's depravity after the fall. That's our status. This is what we are. This is what we do. We have a heart that loves and thinks evil, not some of the time, but continually. Continues and says that the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animal and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But it doesn't stop there. Well, God hates sin and while he sees sin, the grace of God is found very specifically in verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Some translations, but Noah found grace. And what it doesn't say is, well, Noah was the only good guy, and so therefore he earned favor, or that he earned grace. That's not what the text says. It's that Noah found favor in who? In the gracious God. And we know that God does certainly judge sin, and then he sets up the Noahic covenant in chapters 8 and 9. So we see the grace of God in the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, we begin to realize that God chooses the lowly and that he extends his grace to those whom we would often not expect. For instance, in ancient Near Eastern culture, the firstborn son was favored and received the largest inheritance. But in Genesis, we begin to see that God breaks the norm and he often chooses not the firstborn to bless. In other words, God places his grace upon whomever he wills. And akin to the grace and judgment of God is the sixth major theme in the book of Genesis, which is blessing and cursing. Blessing and cursing. In the creation account, we know that God blessed mankind Yet when sin enters into human experience, we see that it is God who is also the one who curses. And as we work our way through the book of Genesis, later we find that God employs mediators for his blessings and his curses, such as Abraham and Israel. In regard to the major themes of Genesis, we also see two of the everlasting covenants of Scripture. Major theme number seven, covenant number one, it's the Noahic covenant, or God's covenant with Noah. And what we find in the Noahic covenant is the broadest covenant in scope as it secures and promises to all mankind and the animate world that there's going to be a realm wherein they can live and thrive called the earth. 
Namely, after the flood subsides in Genesis 8, the Lord goes on to establish relative safety and security for both the earth and its inhabitants. Emphasis on relative safety and security. And what this covenant does is it sets the stage for the redemptive story that plays out here on earth. In the next everlasting covenant, the eighth and final major theme of the book of Genesis is the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant the Abrahamic covenant or God's covenant with Abraham. And really, in some sense, the tragedies that we see in Genesis 3 through 11 prepares the reader for the Abrahamic covenant. We understand from Genesis 1 and 2 that God makes man to rule and reign upon the earth, but sin messes that up, and we see tragedy after tragedy, which prepares us for what we find in Genesis 12. This covenant really is elucidated or explained through the remainder of the book. God's covenant with Abraham is the vehicle of redemption through the rest of Scripture. God's covenant with Abraham is the vehicle of redemption throughout the rest of Scripture. I would say this strongly. If you don't grasp the Abrahamic covenant, then you'll be hard-pressed to grasp the big picture of Scripture. Specifically, the Abrahamic covenant leads to God's covenant with David, which leads to the new covenant, which is inaugurated and will be fulfilled by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's so important for us to understand Genesis 1 through 11, because God's good, he creates, and things go bad. But Genesis 12 is where we get in the car and we go on the ride for God's glorious presentation of his purpose and plan for redemption, for his glory, and for our good. And so this really concludes our simple introduction. There's so much more that could be said. So much had to be cut out, but hopefully this is helpful as we start preaching through the book of Genesis. May we see how foundational and important this book is to understanding our God and the world that he created. Let's go on to the exposition of Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. When St. Basil of Caesarea preached on Genesis 1-1, this is what he said. He said, and I quote, It is right that anyone beginning to narrate the formation of the world should should begin with the good order which reigns in the visible things. I am about to speak of the creation of heaven and earth, which was not spontaneous, as some have imagined, but drew its origin from God. Listen to this. What ear is worthy to hear such a tale? How earnestly the soul should prepare itself to receive such high lessons. The fear that I have for us here in the 21st century is we know this stuff. That's elementary. Yeah, God created. Let's get to the good stuff. Let us hear the words of St. Basil, God in his grace and his mercy communicates such wonderful truths to us in the book of Genesis, specifically speaking of the creation account, and we should be undone in, in awe of this great God. And so may we prepare our souls as we ask God to cause us to be in awe of him as we begin to study his creation account. I do now, finally, invite you to hear and receive the inspired and authoritative word of the triune God. 
Brothers and sisters, he is the only true God. And this is his word. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Genesis 1-1, one more time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The importance of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, as Dr. Thomas Constable notes, is apparent because it contradicts at least, at least six popular philosophies. First is this. Genesis 1-1 opposes atheism as it declares God exists. Second, Genesis 1-1 opposes pantheism as it declares God is not the universe, but rather that God is distinct from his creation. Third, Genesis 1-1 opposes polytheism as it declares that one God created all else, which is opposed to other ancient Near Eastern accounts of creation. The biblical account of creation is monotheistic. Fourth, Genesis 1-1 opposes radical materialism, which is the idea that material is eternal, as it declares that God supernaturally caused matter to be. Fifth, Genesis 1-1 opposes naturalism and evolutionism, as it declares that creation took place when God supernaturally intervened. And finally, sixth, Genesis 1-1 opposes fatalism, as it displays a personal God who freely chose to create. Saints, Genesis 1-1 and the rest of the book, for that matter, is incredibly, incredibly important as it presents God as the creator. You know what our task is? It's to simply take God at his word. Let's consider the time of creation in the beginning. In the beginning. Again, we have one word in the Hebrew here, and it's a prepositional phrase, and it begins with a temporal prefix, in the beginning. What's interesting about this one word is that the Hebrew word order is abnormal. It's atypical. It points and suggests a temporal marker, and the, the noun itself, where we get the beginning, it's a unique noun. It's, it's not used that often, and it suggests definiteness. This is not in a beginning, but it is in the, capital T-H-E, beginning. The term is also fronted in the sentence for emphasis. The main idea of Genesis 1-1 is God created. But the position of the first phrase suggests that not only God created the heavens and the earth, but that God is also the creator, the original, originator of space and time. That there's nothing that exists that we experience that God did not create. In the beginning suggests the absolute beginning of the entire universe as man has ever experienced it. The God of the Bible is, and what I mean by that is he simply exists outside of time and space. And he causes and upholds his creation within his creation of time and space. 
from a big picture perspective in the beginning really anticipates a culmination, does it not? When we read those words, in the beginning, we ought to be thinking, well, isn't there an in the end? In the beginning expects just that, an ending, if you will. And really, what we see is that Genesis chapters 1 and 2 anticipates Genesis, or rather, Revelation chapters 21 and 22. Creation is just the beginning of God's story, beloved. And restoration in the eternal state is the end of God's story. When I think of the, the meta-narrative of Scripture, if you will, I, I think of five movements. Five movements. You have creation, you have the fall, you have promise, you have redemption, and you have restoration. That's the big picture of the story, that God creates and there's the terrible fall but before God redeems, he promises to redeem. And much of the Bible is filled with promise after promise after promise after promise, some which have been fulfilled and some which we eagerly await. Amen? Then the Lord Jesus Christ comes and he redeems such that our redemption is secure, yet it is not fully culminated yet. And so here we are. We await the restoration of all things. It all starts within the beginning, which then introduces us to the God of creation. In the beginning, God. Those are some of my favorite words in Scripture. In the beginning, God. The fourth word in our English Bibles is the main character of all Scripture. As we work our way through the creation account over the next several weeks, I want you to please note that it is God it is God who is at the center of and active in his creation. And just think about that for a moment. That this, this chapter that might be honestly hard for us to experientially comprehend, we, we've never seen anything like this, we've never experienced anything like this, we don't have the power to do the things that God is doing in this passage, but we believe it, amen? The God who creates in this way is at the center and active in his creation. And beloved, I don't think that's changed. God is at the center still. God is active still. So don't lose heart. This reality provides comfort to my soul. The term used for God in Genesis 1-1 is Elohim. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, we will be introduced to the divine name, those famous four letters known as the Tetragrammaton, which we say Jehovah or Yahweh. In Genesis 2, 4, we'll see that the Lord God is acknowledged as the maker of the earth and heavens. And it really should not surprise us that the personal name of God is emphasized in chapter 2. Why? Because chapter 2 is the passage that zooms in to detail the creation of man and woman. The divine name or the personal name of God is often employed to convey God's covenant relationship with his people. And so when we get to chapter 2, verse 4, the use of the divine name suggests that God is the God of covenant even as he is with our first parents, Adam and Eve. However, in Genesis 1-1, Elohim is used. 
And that's the general term used for God. It conveys that he alone is the sovereign God who causes all other things to exist. In the beginning, God. And this brings us to the act of creation. The time of creation in the beginning, the God of creation, God, the act of creation, God created. In the beginning, God created. The Hebrew term for created is the term bara. And what we're going to see as we work our way through chapter 1 is we will regularly see another term in chapter 1 that speaks of God's creative activity, which is asa. We see that in chapter 1, verse 7, and God made. That's the first use of the word asa. Bara is often translated created, while asa is often translated made. It has the idea to make or to do. And we have to be careful here because often what we get from the differentiation of these two terms is this argument. Often well-meaning Christians will argue for creation ex nihilo, which means creation out of nothing, on the basis of the word bara in juxtaposition with the word asaw. They'll say, hey, something like Genesis 1.1 uses bara, the rest of the chapter uses asaw, and so we know that bara means that God created everything out of nothing, while asaw refers to the manipulation or the ordering of matter that was already created. But the problem with that is that's not true. Uh, For example, in chapter 1, verse 21, we see God created the great sea creatures. The word created there is bara. In Genesis 1.27, we see, so God created man in his own image. The word there is bara. And this is really the nail in the coffin, because what do we learn in chapter 2, verse 7? Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And so from Genesis 2.7, we realize that's not creation out of nothing. God is using what he already created to form man. And so what do we do with this? Because what I want us to do is I want us all to affirm creation out of nothing. That God created all that exists out of nothing. And so I do affirm creation ex nihilo. However, it's not on the basis of the term bara. Rather, I affirm creation ex nihilo on the basis of context. Bible 101, context always determines meaning. Context always determines meaning. And so think with it, or think with me through it. Bara is uh, certainly a term that allows for creation, ex nihilo. It certainly allows for it. It is a term consistently used to speak of new activity in the Old Testament. The term always speaks of the product created rather than referring to the material that it is made out of. And thus, if we understand this term correctly, we have uh, an openness or it gives credence to the idea of God creating all that exists out of nothing. However, there's nothing special about the lexical term itself. It doesn't allow us to to single-handedly substantiate the doctrine of ex nihilo. And so, how do we think through it? It's the context, the immediate context that establishes the reality that God created out of nothing. For example, chapter 1, verse 3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Prior to that, 
Genesis 1-1, God created, there's nothing there, and now God says, let there be light, and light appears. It, it was, in this case, God speaks, and what was not, immediately was. It seems that on the first day, God created the heavens and the earth and light out of nothing, and from that point, he goes on to manipulate or arrange that creation, which was already there, which is regularly conveyed by the term Asah. The terms bara and asal really are somewhat synonymous. It is context that must determine how they are used. I, I, I think this is helpful and important as well. So we see Genesis 1-3, God says, let there be light, light appears. There's no light beforehand. That, that's crystal clear. In context, makes sense that he's creating out of nothing. But also helpful is how we consider where bara is used elsewhere in Genesis 1. Look back over at Genesis chapter 1, verse 21 with me. The other places where Barah is used in Genesis 1, it's in conjunction with God's blessing. And so what we see in Genesis 1.21, so God Barah, so God created the great sea creatures, look down in verse 22, and God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas. Jump down to chapter 1, verse 27. So God Barah created man in his own image, verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so what we have here is the contextual use of Barah and Barak, that's the word for blessing. And these instances suggest that God's, or suggest that creation and blessing are emphasized and tied to God's intentional enablement and care in reproduction. It's not just a simple, oh, the author of Genesis throws around Barah whenever he feels like it. In Genesis 1, it starts that way, and the other two times that we see it, it has something to do with God's care and blessing in procreation. And so in all, it seems that God indeed creates out of nothing. Then God spends the remainder of the first six days forming and filling his creation before he rests from creation on day seven. So in the beginning, God created, let's consider the content of creation, the heavens and the earth, the heavens and the earth. Dr. Brian Murphy helpfully says, and I quote, the words, the heavens and the earth, consist of a commonly recognized figure of speech known as a merism. It conveys the idea of totality by the expression of its chief parts. As the expression day and night means all the time, so too this expression means the entire universe. In this case, it conveys a particular focus on the earth, since it essentially says the earth and everything else, and emphatically directs the reader's attention to the earth in verse 2. I think that's spot on. I can't say any better myself. That's why I quoted him. In other words, it's all his. God causes it to be, and he owns it all. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and the world and those who dwell therein. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. We have other expressions later on in Scripture that will affirm this reality. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 declares the time of, the God of, the act of, and the content of creation. God has always existed. 
and the ever-existent, self-dependent God brought everything else into existence out of nothing. Or we could simply say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the simple understanding of chapter 1, verse 1. What a wonderful creator we have, saints. And this brings us to verse 2. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Before we delve into verse 2, I want to make sure we are aware of what is known as the gap theory. The gap theory. And I'm going to do it right now. I'm just going to put all my cards out on the table. I'm a young earther. I am a young earther. And so I believe this is important for us to get because uh, I know there's some in this room who disagree with me. So let's think through this together. I believe that there are genuine brothers and sisters in Christ who believe in an old earth, meaning that they believe the earth is millions or billions or sometimes even trillions of years old. I believe that's possible. Obviously, many of you know that that belief was popularized when? 18th, 19th century? Yep, that's right. That's, that's where it all comes out. And so what, what do we do with this? There are some Christians who believe that scientific discoveries necessitate an old earth. Therefore, they seek to make sense out of the biblical creation account while also accounting for the so-called discoveries of science, all the while aiming to affirm Scripture. That's the goal of genuine believers who believe that there's an old earth, that they are trying to figure it out and trying to affirm Scripture. Next week, Pastor Jeff Alfossa will address the day-age theory. This week, we'll talk about the gap theory. I'm a young earther. I'm proud of it. That, that seems to be what the simple meaning of the text means to me. I'm also not the smartest person you've ever met. So much smarter people would disagree with me. I'm just trying to be faithful to God's word also. So let's talk about the gap theory. What is the gap theory? The gap th theory affirms that the days of creation were literal and ordinary 24-hour days. However, they commonly suggest that there was a gap of time between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. And so this view suggests that Genesis 1-1 was the initial creation, but some say there was a rebellion and or a ruining of creation such that they render Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 as this. Rather than, and the earth, or now the earth was, they'll say, and the earth had become without form and void. And so those who hold this theory posit that, posit that the earth was created billions of years ago, and that within those billions of years, the, the earth became ruined, or at the very least distorted. And really, in this theory, what they're arguing for is not a creation week, but a recreation week. And so necessarily, this theory states that death and decay occurred before the fall of Genesis 3, which would provide a theoretical explanation for the fossil evidence in the earth other than the flood explanation. So that's a general introduction to gap theory. If you want resources, there's a lot of them on that. Let me just share with you three reasons why I don't think it's helpful or necessary to affirm the gap theory. I actually think it's wrong. 
to affirm the gap theory. My third reason will come as we explain verse 2, but let me give you uh, the first two reasons before we get there. Reason number one for why I don't affirm the gap theory. I don't understand how one can make sense out of Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, if the gap theory is legitimate. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31 reads, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And so verse 31 is the conclusion of creation where God communicated his divine approval over everything that he had made all the way back and including verse 1. It seems that God created. It seems that he was pleased. And certainly, we understand that when destruction and ruin come upon the earth in Genesis 3, God does what? He voices his displeasure. And so it seems odd that if ruin had come upon the earth between verses 1 and verse 2, that God is silent about it in Genesis 1 but communicates his divine approval in verse 31. That doesn't make sense to me. Reason number two that I don't affirm the gap theory. It seems to me that verses 1 through 5 consist of the first day. There is no clear exegetical marker that indicates a gap of time between the in the beginning of verse 1 and the and there was evening and there was morning the first day of verse 5. And so however you count your days in Genesis 1, verses 1 through 5 seem to be day 1. Again, Pastor Jeff will address the length of days in Genesis 1 next week. But the third, and I would argue the most important reason why I don't affirm the gap theory, comes from the context and exegesis of verse 2. And so let's turn there once more. Remember, we said that the end of verse 1 sets up a focus on the earth. God created the heavens and the earth. And what we have in verse 2 is a parenthetical statement about the state of the earth. Let me get a little nerdy with you for just a moment, and then I'll wrap this thing up. Hebrew grammar prefixes a little letter known as a vav or a wow, depending on how you pronounce it. It prefixes this little letter onto a noun which is then followed by a perfect verb. And that's the, the, the order that we get in chapter 1, verse 2. And this is the normal and natural way for a verb to explain the state of its subject in Hebrew grammar. The subject is the earth, and the verb is telling us the initial state of the earth immediately after its creation, such that most translations communicate it this way. They say, now the earth was, or and the earth was. The vast majority of translations translate it that way. I wish the ESV did as well, because I think it's helpful for us to see that it's declaring the state of the earth. Now, if the author wanted to communicate an active verbal idea detailing what the earth had become over time, that is, the earth's process of becoming rather than the earth's state of being, then the order in grammar would be different. He would have prefixed that little vav, not onto the noun in front of it, but rather to an imperfect, not a perfect, but an imperfect verb, which would then be followed by the noun, the earth. That is the normal and natural way for a verb to describe its subject's transformation in Hebrew grammar. 
such that then and only then should it be translated, the earth became or the earth had become, so on and so forth. And so the, the Hebrew grammar simply does not allow for a gap theory. Rather, the, rather, the Hebrew grammar suggests a parenthetical statement about the earth to present the state of the earth before God forms and fills the earth in the subsequent days. And so really what first, verse 2 does is it says, okay, you just learned in verse 1 that God created the heavens and the earth. We're going to now focus on the earth because God is going to focus on the earth. That's what the rest of the Bible does. And I'm going to tell you the state of the earth before he forms and fills it in the subsequent six days. That's what verse 2 is doing. And verse 2 gives us three details about the state of the earth immediately after creation. First, it tells us that the earth was without form and void. Different translations translate these terms in various ways. It's fun to look up all the translations, but let me tell you what the idea is. The idea is that the earth was formless and vacant. The earth was formless and vacant. In other words, the earth was not yet a place to dwell upon, and the earth had nothing dwelling upon it. That's what it means. It was, uh, one of my professors said, it was uninhabitable and uninhabited. That's a helpful way to think of it as well. And as we will find out over the next several weeks, is that the creation account displays that God forms his creation and then he fills it. As a matter of fact, the forming days align with the filling days. If you've never noticed, day one, we have the formation of light. Day four, we have the filling with luminaries. Day two, we have the formation of skies and waters. Day five, we have the filling with birds and sea creatures. Day three, we have the forming of land and vegetation. Day six, we have the filling with animals and with mankind. And so the earth was uninhabitable and uninhabited. It was without uh, form and void. The second detail that we're told is that darkness was over the face or surface of the deep. That darkness was over the face or the surface of the deep. This is just a way to express that the earth was covered in darkness and water. That the earth was covered in darkness and water. This detail anticipates the light coming in verses 3 through 5. At this point, the earth was comprised of the absence of life, the absence of light, and covered by the depth of waters. And the last detail that we get is this, my favorite detail. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Hebrew word ruach can be translated as wind or as breath or as spirit. And so we have to decide, is this the wind of God? Is this the breath of God? Or is this the Spirit of God? And some try to understand this passage as the breath or the wind of God. But I think it's clearly the Spirit of God. I think it's far more natural to understand it that way when we look how the Spirit of God, that phrase is used in the Old Testament. It's not talking about a wind or a breath. It's talking about the very Spirit of God. And to understand this as the Spirit of God would be proper because it seems to be that there's the Spirit of God as an actant agent in creation hovering over the surface of the waters. This is really an expression of God's personal care over the earth. That God is not a God who creates and sits back, but he is present and he is active and he has personal care and concern for the earth. It's amazing that Genesis 1-1 
declares to us that God created everything. But out of all the things that God created, he zeroes in on the earth. This little globe that you and I dwell upon. And his spirit is is hovering. That word hovering is the same word used for, for a bird to take care of its chicks. It hovers over them. It cares for them. It protects them. We have the picture that God is the God who creates all things, yet the earth is set forth as the sphere wherein God focuses his attention to bring glory to his name. Genesis 1-2 depicts the earth as the place where the Spirit of God hovers and superintends God's creative activity. In all, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 sets forth the God who created the universe, who created space, and who created time out of nothing. And this God created the earth and focuses his attention on this globe such that he would form the earth and that he would fill the earth. The earth was dark, but God said, let there be light. And it begins to orchestrate this marvelous story that he might be glorified and that his people might be benefited here in Genesis chapter 1. If you don't know the story, this God created mankind on day six that we might have fellowship with him. That fellowship was broken when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. The children of Adam and Eve, the human race, inherited that sin nature of their first parents. We choose to sin and we love to sin by nature. If you don't believe me, come over to my house this week. I'll let you hang out with my family. You don't have to teach people how to sin. It's what we do. But, but God, he sent his only begotten son into the world that he created to restore fellowship with him. My question to you is, do you know him? Do you know him? Do you know that there's a greater expression of God's personal care and concern for his creation other than the spirit hovering over the earth? It's the sending of his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save sinners like you and I from our sin and from the wrath to come. Do you know him this morning, saints? friends. I don't mean know about him. I mean know him such that you believe his word and you take it at face value, that what he says goes in your life. Do you know him this morning? Do you know the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you heard of his perfect life? Have you experienced or tasted of his substitutionary atoning death? Have you heard that he was raised to glory, that he ascended on high even now? He intercedes for his people. Do you know him this morning, friends? And do you know that he's coming back to this earth? That he's coming to rule and reign, to judge the living and the dead. The, the Bible teaches that his saints will serve him and reign with him for all eternity. Do you know him? In the beginning, God 
created the heavens and the earth. And in the end, God will restore the heavens and the earth. Oh, you better know him. And if you know him, you better praise him. Father, would you bless us as we consider your word, as we consider this book of beginnings, as we launch on this new sermon series, Lord, I pray that you would give us an appreciation and an awe for you as our creator who owns it all. Would we joyfully understand that you are a gracious God who creates first and foremost for your own glory, but that also you glorifying yourself is what's best for us. Thank you for being a great God. Lord, help us to grow in our understanding of a biblical worldview as we consider the book of Genesis. Help us to understand what it declares and to believe it and to live in light of it. Help us to glory in your great plan of redemption after we taste of the horrors of sin revealed in Genesis 3 through 11. We thank you that you are a faithful God. May we faithfully serve you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.